time. Let me pray for us before we start. Father, it's a privilege that you chose us and you pursued us and you have loved us and you have written a story for us um, that's redemptive, uh, that revealed our sin to us and that revealed your love to us and that caused us to believe in you. And we pray as leaders, as men and women <coughs> called by you um, with the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to think well about ministry Help us think well about the POM here. And help us just to think about what it means to love youth and to love our church. And we aren't adequate for that, but you knew that, so you gave us the Holy Spirit. And you give us people who are gifted by you to join us. And so help us to think strategically about those folks, about our POM, and about the goals and, and the principles. And we pray this, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. So the way I'm going to try to divide our time up today, which is two hours, is I'm going to divide it sort of into three sections. <laughs> and because I, we only do this once a year, I don't know what I've said to you or what you've heard, but we're going to start with a rant, and then we're going to do some normal teaching. Um, and uh, so my rant is this. Um, okay, rule number one when you're in class with me. I have the unfortunate Southern Baptist tone. It means I always feel like I'm preaching, everything's on fire, it's an emergency right now. And that is horrible for teaching. It's horrific. Because the best teaching is done when people raise their hand and ask questions. So like I sat in on a thing yesterday, and like y'all asked, not y'all, but they asked like eight questions during it. Then I talk for two hours, and everybody sits there and looks at me like I'm an idiot. Because um, I'm ranting and Southern Baptist. <laughs> I love Southern Baptist, but you know, there's that tone that preacher gets. And I just, my wife says, unfortunately, that's the way I talk all the time. <laughs> Budget discussion, carnage gas, it's not good. So, um, for us, in your second year, to talk about the goals and the principles, you have to accept that the POM, what it means, remember Les talked about your theology, your philosophy, and your methodology, right? That it's, and he always says, this is flexible. I, I don't disagree with him. I just don't agree with him. Um, what a POM does, a POM answers the question how you are going to program your group. So rant number one, programming is the best word in the world. So there's this big anti-bias in PCA reform circles against programming. And you'll hear people, and I don't know any of you personally, I know no names, so if this is you, don't raise your hand, just keep it between you and yourself. So all these people that are planning churches, and we're not going to do programming. We're just going to be organic. And all that means is, in my opinion only, as an old guy, you're lazy. That's what I think it means. We're going to see what happens, but we're not going to intentionally do it. And a POM must involve intentionality. So yesterday, you'll get this next year, when I did Third and Beyond on leadership, I talked about that we, so I talked about the fact that your POM should cause you to do very specific things. Like, it should control what you do. 
Evidence number one for that. Every other organization in the world, that's true of them. For instance, I'm not saying they're good, but you know what a campus crusade ministry looks like? You know what their church plant looks like? And you know what their adults look like? That's not a criticism because they have a philosophy that leads to how they do things. This is Toyota. This is Facebook. This is Google. Having identified who they are and what they believe, they intentionally begin to do programming. So when we move here and begin to talk about goals and principles, we're not just articulating, and this is how people take it, a the, let, me, let me say, I said that wrong. What, in our world, in REF world, and in ROM world, we use POM, but we mean TOM, theology of ministry. So how do I prove that? If I had the little piece of paper that they popped up on the wall that says the summation of the, of the POM, there's only three action words on it. Ready? One-to-one, -one, small group, and large group. Um, that's a description of reality. Like, that doesn't tell you anything. Like, if you get up in the morning, you're doing those actions. You are sometimes talking to a person. You're sometimes talking to several people. And sometimes you're talking to people like this. That's not... We have a theology of ministry, and I'm trying to change it into a philosophy of ministry. And we, by putting flexibility here, and by the PC's young people using the word organic because they hate their parents' church, so instead of just planning a better church, their hatred of their parents' church led to, will be organic. Which means you're intentionally going to coffee houses, you're intentionally changing the vibe of the church, you're intentionally talking differently about worship. Huh, that sounds like a program to me, but you're calling it organic. So example number two. Uh, <laughs> I told you I'd rant. Did I not? I promised you a rant. Here it is, right? <laughs> Example number two, and then we'll do what we're going to do. So the gentleman that planted Kelly and Fiddle's church, his name is Mark Ressler. He did grow up in Briarwood. And um, he's a great leader, and he's a great man. One of, the, um, one of the humbling, like it's hard to humble Johnstone, one of the humbling things about being in his church is about 40% of his people, he led to Christ. Like, he's a big EE -E guy. Like, and he's good at it. I think if there was an EE, -E, he'd still lead those 40% of the people to Christ. But he's, he's amazing. But he says all the time out loud, and he says it to me, I'm, at this point, he's, not, he's, he's more than like a grandfatherly figure. He's, he's becoming healthy again. He's really helpful. People love his socks off, and they should. But he's always saying something to me that's an absolute lie. He goes, John, we just moved out here. And we were just organic. We just did EE and saw what God was doing. And that's a lie. And this is what I mean by that. Mark did some amazingly important things intentionally. He's just afraid to admit it. For instance, the first thing he did was that he intentionally planted his church in a section of Tucson that was just like him. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that's the way you plan all churches. I'm saying, I said, Mark, one day we're sitting in his back porch. I said, why did you put the church in the foothills? He's like, you know, John, that's a great question. Uh, it's just what God did. I was like, no, I don't. I said, Mark, I believe that. But T goes, well, you know, John, when, you know, when I look back on it, you know, like, I was going door to door. He was going door to door all over Tucson, and those were the people that would leave their doors open. Well, interestingly enough, what lives in that section of town? A bunch of retired Southerners. So a southern pastor opens their door 
They're like, I like talking to this guy. He sounds like me. Then Mark, having decided to put his church there, so I'll give him that maybe where he put it was organic. He goes, John, then I realized I had to reach leaders. Like, if you don't reach leaders, it's not going to work. So he met a Supreme Court justice and put him in a discipleship group. He met the most important developer in Tucson, Arizona, the guy who built La Paloma, Dove Mountain, and one other resort. He put him in that small group. Then he met the richest man in Tucson that he didn't know was the richest man in Tucson, but he knew he had some resources, and put him in a small group. And then he met the most extroverted, happy human being I ever met, who's pretty wealthy. He's basically the mayor of the foothills. And that was his first session. So I wonder what you can do with a couple of billionaires, a Supreme Court justice, and the mayor. <laughs> he intentionally met leaders, right? So he found people. I don't necessarily agree with this. He met leaders. And then Mark did something crazy, um, crazy interesting. He made a decision to only hire local people. Um, now, so what Mark did was build an extensive network of leaders in the first two years of his church. So he, when he's saying, John, I don't understand why the church exploded. He's being honest, but I understand it. He found himself... He met leaders, and he hired local people. So he walked in a bookstore, and everybody in Tucson knows this Christian bookseller. Everybody loved him. His name's Winston Maddox. Mark spent 10, with it, 10 minutes with him. He'd never been to seminary. He said, I want you to be my assistant pastor. So now the guy that runs the most important bookstore in Tucson for Christians, a place where there is a big divide between Christians and non-Christians, is now telling everybody that comes into the store, you ought to go to Catalina Foothills Church. Um, that's the most effective strategy I've ever heard for growing the church. <laughs> it wasn't organic. Like six other PC people failed to plant churches out there. Mark may not know that he had an intentional strategy, but he did. So the, this soapbox is me saying, we like to use the word <coughs> POM a lot. But I want you to be aware that what we've historically meant is T-O-M. It's our theology of ministry. It tells us what we're to believe. Like, we are to reach and equip. And maybe you could say reaching is an action word. And we do it. We have our, you know, we have reach and equip. Then we have growth and grace, fellowship and service, world and life, you, um, and missions, right? And then we have justification, sanctification, script, and glorification. If you start looking at that, none of it tells you what to do differently or the same as her. It's just a theology of ministry. And so for it to become a philosophy of ministry, I'm trying to make you uncomfortable, it ought to make you think about programming. In, in the, my last rant before I do what I'm supposed to do, your, your philosophy of ministry ought to be the grid through which you're making all of your decisions. You look at it, and you walk through it, and you begin to say these things. We're going to start a Bible study on site at the public high school campus because we can't get the kids over here, and if we want to teach them these things, we have to go to them. And so we're going to do A, B, C, and D to get them there. We're going to buy food, 
We're going to get younger people to teach it like college. I'm not describing young life. I'm just saying this is what I would do. And we're going to do it on Friday afternoons, actually, counterintuitively. It's the only afternoon sports programs on practice. That's what we're going to do. And that answer needs to come from this, or it's not a philosophy of ministry. The thing needs to drive you to do something. It needs to impact how you program. Um, I'm about ready to do my stuff. One more. If you, if you, it's so hot. Um, <laughs> if you think about Genesis, actually, it was unaware of that until just now. I, I, I'm very proud of it, but I was unaware of it. Um, you, um, when you were made in God's image, introverted or extroverted, you were made to be a creator. You can't help but create. Man or woman, what you do is creating. So when you do nothing in the name of a theology of ministry, you are creating. So you are, by nature, people who are supposed to build programs. It's not an e evil word. Program is simply an application. It's working out in a strategic Christian way what the goals and the principles teach us to do. Like, and, and, so like, you can tell I've been like damaged. I had to do counseling about this. It's just frustrating for some of us who labor in tough places to see the church built in the perfect hipster world where all the 35-year-olds making $40 million moving in and the pastors say with his 600 people, I don't know what we did, it's organic. You put it in the right place. That's an intentional decision. And I'm over here, and there's no economic development, and therefore I have to do different things than you. But we do them from the right reason. But no one simply just said, I'm special, God did this for me. You are always creating. And what you have to be careful about when you badmouth programs is you're speaking truth. You believe that you should do nothing and your people are listening to you. That's what they, your people are smarter than you. They work for Google, Facebook. They work in companies where the boss walks in and says, I've got seven goals this quarter. I need you to do them or I need you to hit the door. And that guy says, do the seven goals, right? Not asking your church to become that cutthroat. But when you say, we're just organic, they, part of the reason they're coming to your church is like, good, I don't have to do anything to serve God here. That's what they're hearing you say. And I, look, I just was part of a church plan in Knoxville. One of its major ministries was helping people decompress out of bad ministries. It's a legitimate ministry. But we did it intentionally. It wasn't just like, let's go drink beer and badmouth other churches. That's not a strategy. And I just, so I'm, 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 I'm stepping down right now. Programs are a great thing. Embrace that reform people. Okay. <laughs> Any questions? Let, let me stop my Southern Baptist. Any questions? I don't have a question. Um, I just did more comments on you because we are part of a church plan. You're a Southern Baptist? 
Well, I I did I graduated from Southern Baptist uh, College. Yesterday I said Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. <laughs> the two people were here. Were like, they're, they're the youth pastor with Southern Baptist Church, and I'm like, and they're like. You would need to apologize. We agree with you. So you can now beat me up. Go. No, no, it's a compliment. Um, we've been part of it for about five years, and we did start out very much like that. Like, well, let's just kind of see how it goes, and where it goes. Um, in the last two years, we've hired an amazing pastor, Mark Kuyper. Um, and it's programs is the way to go. He showed up with intentionality. Yes. Great. You became an illustration. Programs are the way to go. Other questions? Maybe speak to how you've seen programming work well in the youth ministry setting, whether it's, I don't know exactly, but how do you know a guy gets it or doesn't get it? And maybe do some diagnostics on that. Well, I think what we're after, and this is a great question, is we're after, so I'm using the word incarnation, but I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid contextualization. But what RUM and RYM are acknowledging in the way they've written this historically is that um, you can't take you know, what that church is and is doing in that it, there and just step it over here and expect it to work. Yeah. Um, because there are different people, you know, what 55-year-olds want or what 25-year-olds want is different. We want them all in one church. But So I think what I'm saying is I can speak to what I think works well in youth groups. I'm not going to give, I'll give concrete examples later. But I'm saying that you can't, let me, let me tell you sort of what I'm taking a shot at out of my own painful history, is RUF campus ministers saying, and I just preach the word, just preach the word. If a pastor literally moved to a town and just on a Sunday by himself in his den stood up and started preaching, I don't know that he'd ever gather anybody. It, it, it's a bigger question of how to build a group. And so in this world, like, we just preach the word, or we believe in this, it doesn't answer a question. That's, that's a great theology. I believe in preaching. But what should we do with that? And what, what the PM is arguing, both in terms of the purpose, the goals, and the principles, this does answer what you should be doing, right? So let me answer your question. I think the church that has a gigantic Christian school attached to it, and let's say it's 400 people, and now we have another 400-person PC church, kind of the same demographic. They do not have a Christian school, right? I think as they contemplate their youth ministries, they have the same purpose, goals, and principles. But now we have to do something really different in those two places. Because this church has got a bunch of kids, right? And they go to, they go to an away-away Christian school or their home school or they go to public school, Probably in this church, I mean, statistically, tell us most of them go to that Christian school. So I'm probably thinking over here, these are the things we believe everybody needs to walk in life effectively. We need to be reaching and equipping, and they need to understand what a holistic Christian life is, and what is the engine for that Christian life, right? Like, what is the thing that makes that work? That's how this fits together. But I would say over here with my Christian school, we would have a strategy to say how do we partner with our Christian school to, to do this while acknowledging that probably not every kid goes there, but most of them do. It's going to flavor it because this important and beautiful institution is going to influence my youth group more than the public school down the road, which will influence it. 
And so you immediately see some flexibility. But we want college kids and older people in the lives of those children. We want to help the dads simplify how they think about spiritual leadership and just become an encouraging dad and a present dad and a loving dad. Same thing, but we would probably do it if we walked through it and we're not aware of our flaws of ministry. We might say, they're doing different things, but they're not, right? Their things, let's use Pear Orchard. Pear Orchard's got the school behind the building. So, like, your youth group and your school are, like, uber close. Our little school, uh, church in Knoxville, 500 people, it wasn't a school within six miles of us. Your youth group's all out here all the time. It's always in homes. It's always, it's never at the building. I don't know this is true about Pear Orchard. I think about Pear Orchard. Pear Orchard can do more stuff there. Like, the kids walk out of the building, right? So, but you're doing the same thing. Does that make sense? It does. Good question. Good question. It's much better. Is that true, what I just said? Was, was my guess about the Parrot was sort of the peer orchard guy. Not sort of. He quit. He did it. He was successful. He said it sucked. He liked it. I'm kidding. Kidding. I know that's on recording. John Parrot didn't say that. He's in the room. I'm over the top. I said it to make fun of him. He loves peer orchard. He would die for them. Another question. your church is moving to like a different area of town, how should your church be rethinking maybe programs? Okay, so I think that the way you think about programs is incarnation. And here's, here's all I mean by that. The Apostle Paul says, to win the Greeks, I became Greek. To win the law-abiding, I became a law-abider. To win the licentian, I became a so Paul and Jesus. So in Jesus' case, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God became a little baby. It's a crazy transition, right? It's crazy. Meditate on that for two months. He changed radically to win his people. And Paul is saying, for me to win people, I'll change. I won't give up on belief in Jesus Christ. But I, want, I understand why somebody's licentious. I understand why they're a law keeper. I understand why they're Greek. I'll become them. This makes your question easy, but really hard. You need to become that part of town. One of the things Reformed churches struggle with is Reformed churches are accidentally too kingdom. All I mean by this is they think church is A, and they try to set those things everywhere. And they, they, they like, oh, we all need to be liturgical. We all need to be... We need to do the Howard Catechism with bad language nobody uses anymore. And we try to set a church and go, it'll work because it's a church. The New Testament have that. The New Testament says when you're in Colossae, you become like them. You do. So when you move your church from hipster land, because the price has got too much, and you're actually doing the right thing where we're all going, and you're going to suburban heaven. Because the suburbs are where God loves people. You're moving out there where people do normal things like live in a house and don't buy rusty tin stuff. And don't need to walk to pay $8 for coffee. They just cure it. When you find the happy people, you have to act like them, right? But if you reversed it, if you, if you, were, if you were sort of foolish enough to be a suburban church, this would be easier to go to the suburbs not your sensibilities, it's way harder to go back to the younger, you know, when you're experienced, you should go into that. It's just harder. 
Okay, so implications for this. I see you. One implication is people hate this. I'm just trying to be helpful. You have to staff generationally. Like right now, I need an assistant pastor to help us get younger at Catalina Fiddles Church. Got a massive Christian school attached to our. So I need a 30-year-old with four kids. And he needs to be not three, not two, four. Because I need them in four grades, meaning the most, and I need, I need, and I'm going to pay the little wife a little bit like, you're, I'm paying you to be the room mom. That's your mission. <laughs> Go win Push Rich Christian Academy. Wow. It's an easy fish. Become like Tucson. This is our part of Tucson. All these people are coming, like, John, I got the guy for you. I'm like, how old is he? 50. And he's great. He's great. He'd be a great assistant pastor. He would do nothing for me. He would not help me become like Tucson, right? So you have to acknowledge when all of you were young and planted a church, you were cool and hip, and three years later you weren't. And you got to rehire down, and you also have to hire up. And you just have to, like, I'm just amazed, like, people are playing church with three, like, the music guy's 27, the pastor's 28, and the assistant pastor's 25. Guys, that's terrible. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Let's all reach 25-year-olds. I, I would think we would want to spread that out a little bit. Let's go steal the disgruntled music guy from the place down the street who's 40, who's got a little experience with this, who can look at us and go, that's a bad idea, I tried that once. Let's get a 35-year-old in there and let's spread it out or else we become these really weird churches. Yes, sir. <laughs> would this be a good time to push back on this? Absolutely. Hold on. Yeah, one second. Yeah. <laughs> Let me sum it up since I, I didn't know if you were going to... You have the POM helps you, you. You translate this theology of ministry into a philosophy into becoming like the people around you. Push back. So very freely, too. Yeah. So you're you're saying that organic means programmatic. I'm saying that I'm saying that every human being is programmatic, and that in in certain circles in church planning world, we might say Acts 29, PCA, and just younger folks, there's been a reaction to the mega-programmed church, the large church, and the language has been organic. But I'm, only, I'm not arguing that there aren't, like, things aren't organic or things. I mean, in any ministry context, you have these serendipitous, amazing moments where suddenly you have this ministry, and, and no one planned for it. You didn't see it coming. It was there. I mean... An example would be a church that I spoke at recently ended up with about 25 disabled people. And, and, and no one there knew how to minister to disabled people. And they had to learn and figure it out, but somehow it just ended up there. But when you say, we're organic, what is your program? We don't have one, we're organic. I'm only arguing that's a program. To be organic is a program. And it has a, I mean, if I had time, I'd say being organic um, typically means, let me make the example, I don't think this means, but it typically means we're not really into Christian education, we're not doing Sunday schools. It means we're doing home groups, probably around fellowship more than content. I like that. The thing means something, but the way we use it is an excuse not to be intentional in our programming. That's what I'm trying to say. Push back some more. 
So you're okay. That's more clear for me. So you're saying by being organic, you're being you're doing a program. So couldn't they flip that and say the same thing about couldn't an organic person say the same thing about your program? Yeah, I, but I don't. I, so in this discussion, as we've trained people through the years here, some of what we're doing is reacting to the way the people before you have talked to us. But um, to, I want to use an easy example. I mean, Young Life has a very narrow, intentional way they do youth ministry, right? That they're going to do it with this kind of music in, in this place and with this feel about it. It's, it's pretty easy to define. Um, and so you'll have youth pastors in this room, both men and women, who will say, hey, the only thing I'm sure my pastor wants is for me not to be Young Life. He's against program-driven ministry. Not mocking him. I'm saying that's his language. We don't want to be programmatic. We want to be organic in our youth group, which leaves a, a younger person who's trying to work out the implications of that confused about what their job is. Because their job, according to this POM, is to reach and equip. So you're a youth pastor. You have to reach people. Well, the first question you might think about is, how do I reach them in Sunday school? Because we already have an existing Sunday school. The second thing you might think is, I need an out-of-church event, a Bible study or a get-together where I'm meeting other people. And then I need ways to do contact with you know, non-Christian kids and their parents. And if you sort of work organic out to its utter end, you, wouldn't, you would be careful not to do the program. But that's a program like, how do I meet people? Do you meet people in a coffee shop or do you meet them at Walmart? Um, when you, okay, so here's a programming question. Are you a food person around youth group or a non-food person? And that, that actually can get people fired up, right? You know, whether you serve food or don't serve food. But all of those are a programming decision because you're creative, because God made you creative, and you're doing something. You would keep hitting me. I mean... I follow your reverse argument. No, yeah, it seems like you're trying to redefine terms. So I'm wanting you to yeah, yeah, yeah. define terms <coughs> farther. That's great. But, but I would say, I'm, I'm going to go back to her question. Then. The thing that we're after here for youth ministers is you becoming like youth. And I don't care if you're 64 or 16. It's hard. Um, it's hard. Because... Um, yeah, we're raising a wolf pack out there, and it's very difficult to reach them. Um, and you have to, um, you have to undo a lot of your own how you became a Christian youth group, how you think about youth group, to then understand their youth experience. Right? Um, let me move on to what I'm supposed to cover. My, I always get on that hobby horse. Britain liked it, I think, especially. And I get to stay on it too long. But I love staying on it too long. Um, <coughs> what are the goals? They are growth in grace, fellowship, and service, <coughs> missions and evangelism, And world and life.
life for you. <coughs> you can't get it, it's a sinus infection. I'm saying that to y'all because I'm coughing on y'all. Um, so the goals tell you two things at least, right? They tell you um, what you're doing. Y'all won't like that word. I'll choose a different word. What you're trying to do in people, and and the total the totality of what you need to be doing. Totality of your job. So let's flesh that out. So as we look at these goals, and by the way, you can change them. You know, they don't have to say this. This is just saying that a normal Christian in your youth group should be growing in the knowledge of God, right? That's just that's what that means. And that they should be experiencing fellowship with Christians. By the way, I hate that these are attached, so if I'm going to be a hobby horse today, I'm going to put service down here. Uh, they should have fellowship. They should be taught how to do missions and evangelism, and some of those are coordinated, but that's sort of a bad divider too because we need to help them think about, how, we're talking about Christians at this point, how they do evangelism, and then we want them to have a world in life view, and we want them to serve others. <coughs> For instance, how this controls my thinking in my new environment is this tells me the totality of what I need to do at Catfoot. So I need to create a church where those things, one, two, three, four, five, six, are always working. <clears throat> so, uh, acknowledgement to the organic folks. Some of them will organically work better than others, for sure. But it's my job to actually push on these things to make sure they are in people and that they're in my church. They're the totality of my job. So that I sit down with these goals every year and I now have a way to evaluate the maturity of my people and what I'm doing. Are you tracking with me? Am I making sense? So that's why you won't ever hear a fight in circles with this, like if somebody changes a word here. I mean, this really is just an attempt to describe what a mature Christian is described at in the New Testament, right? These are the characteristics that you would see in any mature Christian. Now, look. Not every Christian is the same or can do these the same or can experience these the same. But on the whole, these are the things you want to be doing. And they let you say, how are our youth growing in grace? Now, remember, reach and equip. I'm going to go back to this in a second. This means that you're, you are that you're teaching Christians this. <clears throat> and the reason I say that is this needs to work itself out in your overall goals, which is the Great Commission, right? So this is not this. I mean, this is the big question of I've got to do two things in church. We've got a place where we preach the gospel, we're getting the lives of non-Christians, where we meet non-Christians, and I've got to help them, that's this, to be able to go do this. And all of these, in some sense, relate to this, to the reaching. So it's interesting to me that RUF always got the big tag for not doing evangelism, 
when what we thought we were doing the whole time is more evangelism than anybody else, because we thought all of this helps people do the reaching, right? That when I teach Christians how to fellowship, they'll invite non-Christians into their fellowship, and we'll start to do evangelism, just not necessarily always in an EE way. And we recognize that as we go on mission trips, and we meet non-Christians, we even want to take non-Christians, because non-Christians will go with us to serve, we're starting to do reaching. So this tells me how I'm programming my youth ministry. So for instance, I certainly want to have small groups. I want to have a Sunday school with certain content in it. <coughs> and this is, this is both not hard and hard. I want to do things that are strictly for fellowship. So when you have a Bible study and then hang out 15 minutes after, that's real fellowship. But you actually also want to do things that are just <coughs> fellowship. Right? So recently in our church, we asked the dads to bring their children to a hockey game. So I've got some really great older folks in my church. Like, you know, 78, 80, 83. And, and these people, they love Jesus a lot. They prayed for 80 years. They followed Christ. And we went to the hockey game. People had a blast. We ordered pizza. We had a lot of cotton candy. Spectacular. And this older gentleman said, John, that was fun, but... I mean, is that the kind of thing the church should do? I'm not bothered about this question. He grew up in a context, right, in an older generation. He's from in a small town in Indiana. He's a Methodist from Indiana. He's used to every church event having Bible at the center. Like, if we didn't read the Bible and study it, was it a church event? And so I said, do you think that every New Testament, every time New Testament Christians got together, like to have dinner, or when they got together daily, they always had the Bible in the center of it. He said, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm going to study that with you. Because what I'm trying to do to him, because he's important in my church, is convince him that this is really important for Christians. Now, what's interesting is his experience of it at the hockey game was really positive. But he was concerned that we were not faithful because we didn't do a Bible teaching time. I'm with him. I don't agree with him, but I'm with him. It's a fair question. But my point is, I'm programming at my church an organic thing. Let's go to a hockey game. John, what do you want to have happen to hockey? That's where I'm, I don't know. I'd like my people to get together. I'll tell you what it really proved to me is that men love when the church plans stuff like this because they're why I strongly encourage them to go to the hockey game. <laughs> Even though it's on a Friday night when normally she would be like, stay home, I haven't seen y'all. It's a fair thing for a wife to say. But because you put church on it, all these men got get-out-of-jail-free cards. And so there like 65 families there. Um, so I not only want to teach them missions, how many mission trips are you doing a year? What age group are you targeting those mission trips to, right? Why are you targeting those age? Are you doing them in town or are you doing them cross-culturally? All of those questions relate to this ought to be in a, ch a child's life. Uh, by the way, this is gold for your intergenerational struggles. So when you take a mission trip as a youth group, invite the church. Just do stuff where y'all can take 80, 90 people. Um, hey, roll tide, dog, roll tide. Um, you want to take people, that's Britain, Williams, my Alabama, poor Alabama friend. We went to the championship game together, and I mean, 
send him a lot of mean stuff about Clemson. Um, you want to, this is a place where, you know, one of the struggles you have with inter, like an intergenerational ministry is that um, the older people are kind of offensive to the younger people. And I'm not, they're not mean to me, but like in my church, and I'm now an expert on this, just for my, if we have a meeting, they're talking about politics. Like, if we do Sunday school, if they do about, like, I've had to do a literal discussion with my leaders that say, you've got to stop talking about politics. And you can feel their children looking at them like, y'all are cray-cray. Because we know you voted for Trump, and we don't like any of the candidates. I'm not saying younger people aren't very politically active, but it's, it's an interesting dynamic, so it's, you have to be very careful when you plan these things. It's interesting, you take them to Guatemala, all that discussion starts. We gotta get in the bus, we gotta get over there, gotta build that thing, who's doing lunch? They're not watching Fox News, they don't have their phones, either group, either group of them, they're not on Twitter, and suddenly, we have some children looking up at their grandparents going, my grandparents really a Christian. And you have some of the grandparents going, well, these kids aren't as bad as I thought. I've literally had that said because they're just so different. There's a lot of reasons they're different, but this kind of thing can really, really be a place where you t hit on the intergenerational thing. Ask Can Fellowship, like when we went to a hockey game, it was all ages. It was so easy. Um, we have an owner of Sonic. So we're doing Sonic Night next month, and uh, it's one price for a family, and you just show up in the Sonic. We have the whole Sonic to ourselves, and you eat ice cream and you get sick. And let me tell you something: older people love that. So we're doing <laughs> Sonic Night. That's one of our um, world and life views. A little world and life views easy and hard. So. If your church has got a bunch of young and new Christians, the world in life you think is harder to teach. I'm not saying it's impossible, <coughs> but it takes a certain level of sophistication to sort of completely embrace what that means. You should teach it, but it's something that you might think of in some ways as one-offs. By the time kids get to college and enter Vanderbilt and UT and University of Arizona and Missouri, this thing is brewing in their mind, and you can have some amazing discussions about it as they experience the science-faith dilemma, as they experience all of those things. But in high schoolers, I would caution you against this. I've just seen a bunch of churches say, we're, we're taking our seniors, and we're going to run them through a World in Life View apologetics course. And I don't know... So, 30% of the kids learn but the other 70% don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's not their fault. It, uh, this little sub-point is this. This is hard. This is the hardest one. Because they've almost got to be asking questions. So you'll do all this training. You've all done this. World Life View, Theology, Apologetics, and then he joins the fraternity, and it somehow missed him, right? Um, but after his sophomore year in college, he's suddenly back asking that question. And especially if you're in an environment, it's interesting, and I'm actually more appreciative of Christian schools than you may be suspicious of that I am, but in Christian schools at times, their inability to get their children in the presence of a real pagan, a real antagonist, can make this difficult. That's not, in any level, don't have Christian schools. My example would be this. 
my daughter went to a public school because we could not afford private school. So my philosophy of schooling was, what can I afford? John, that's terrible. I'm not bankrupting myself to learn geometry. Her best, her best friend went to this incredibly strong Christian school in Knoxville. And both of these girls who I know really well, had my daughter and she, they had different strengths because of those experiences. And they had different weaknesses. But just as an example, the Christian school girl kept saying to my daughter, like, and this is important for Christian schools, you're like, hey, my pagan English teacher doesn't, is an atheist, but doesn't believe exactly what they told me at school an atheist would believe. And, and why is this the case? Because we're all inconsistent, right? There's a sense in which what I would want you to do with this, if you're asking John Stone's 53-year-old fat opinion, is this. I think the best way to do this is to start putting videos up and having them evaluate them with you. So I think what you want to do with this is you want to put, excuse me if this isn't cool, because I literally have no idea what cool is. But I would want to put Drake and Taylor Swift up there. I'd want the words, and I would say, tell me why you love the song. Tell me why it's your favorite song. Tell me what it's saying. Tell me how it's different than the Bible. And I would let them answer it. The more you can get them to interact with this. Uh, I heard Tim Keller say this. I don't know if it's true. Tim Keller says what he would do right now is he would take the old Mary Poppins and he would show it. He would take the new Mary Poppins and show it. Now, I haven't seen the movie, and Tim got all... Tim Keller's kind of weird, right? I mean, he's genius, but it's weird. He got all into the last scene where everybody had a balloon in the new one. Has anybody seen the new one? Yeah. yeah. They all had balloons. And guys, he did this rift on eternal truth and foundations, which I buy. I just didn't understand it. But his point was, he wouldn't want the youth to say, why did she have a kite? Why do they all have balloons? This was his answer, by the way. It's fascinating. He says, for all cultures, there was truth. People, now it's people, no truth. And that even pagans used to think we had to find a transformative truth to become whole people. Now the only whole person are individuals who are utterly unrestricted. And therefore, Mary Poppins can't have one kite but multiple loons to empower multiple people. Don't know if that's true. It's fascinating. Um, but I would tell you, I think I told y'all this. I don't know if you... Keller also said what's interesting about this is don't be shocked when your kids go to college and go to their faith because it's an app now. When an individual adds to make, if you're the ultimate truth, there is no truth. You're the ultimate truth. Then an app is only useful while it's useful. It's useful at home because you get along with your parents you love. You definitely love your parents. You know the idiots believe this, and so you take it on as an app. You fully embrace it, but you immediately delete it at college, which is interesting. And then service. So one of the things we are trying to do that we did at Redeemer is that every group that meets at Redeemer that is a Bible study is, has to have three things. Bible, community, and service. So right now, all of my community groups, all of their community groups are not mine yet, they now have to schedule a service opportunity once a quarter in the town. They can visit, we have a ton of shut-ins, they can visit shut-ins, they can go downtown, there's a ton of construction around homelessness, but we built this in because we, did, we want them to embrace that the mission is out. So because our church is big and was big, they're used to only, as it were, an attractional model. Now for those of you who have planted churches, you recognize that 
There's no place to attract them to. We rent this place. It disappears on Monday. So you're really an outward-facing church for a season. Then you buy a building, and people get lazy. So one of the things we're doing in terms of, like this is programming, right? We're saying we created the list of things they can do and how to contact those places, and they have to do them every quarter. And so far, they're loving it. Um, questions. I have more to say, but I'm going to pause. I, I was right. Say that again about you said you created a list in every quarter. Of, who has to do that? The service staff. Oh, okay. So, in, so think of a church of 600 people. We got, I saw the number, like 22 community groups. We have a number of, of same-sex Bible studies, men or women. And, and because our church was so ingrown and so old, I wanted them. So I wanted them to always think that the mission is to go outward. So I mean, you don't care about this. The way I've articulated the mission is I typically put a chair up on stage, and I preach these three sermons called "Fill the Chair." Now they had lost a bunch of people; they've been really disrupted. And I said, "Look, if we don't fill the chair with new people and younger people, we won't be here in 16 years." And I said, "I'll be happy to ride this 16 years out with you. We'll have a blast. We'll play golf. We did the club, but we won't be here." So the first goal is to fill the chair. But the second goal is to stop, this is a generational thing, is to stop seeing the Christian life as a learning experience and add that it's also a doing experience, right? So I had all these Bible studies, and man, they're studying Bible, and you have no sense that they're even out there. And so I said, when you get together, you have to do a Bible component. They already had that. I want you to do a community event once a month and a service event every quarter. Then in the church office, we came up with all these, I mean, that church has been there 25 years, so they have all these connections. We, we wrote all the ministries and said, what could a group do on a Saturday, Friday, Tuesday? And they sent them, so they don't have to work real hard to find these. But it's me trying to say, this is why we're here. Does that make sense? You're challenging those community groups to go do something with them. Yeah. I, I, they have two communities. They must divide in the next year. And they must add this component to all of them. They're really broken, so I can get away with that stuff. If you go to a functioning, healthy church, you might want to wait five years for you say that. <laughs> when you were 1,200 and you went to 200, the new preacher gets away with a lot more because they were in trouble. And they recognized that. So like when I started naming that for them, that helped. Hey, let's take a 10-minute break real quick. Our 10 minute break. Hi guys, let's get started again. I really appreciate your questions. Uh, questions help me more than anything else. So, goals tell you what you want in your people and the totality of what your job is, whether you're a pastor, assistant pastor, head pastor. Now, as an assistant pastor or youth pastor, um, especially as an assistant pastor, you may be told to work in three areas, and I get that. Like, we want to see. You work on missions and service. I got it. But here's and here's what I mean. Let me let me put in my swipe for professionalism. And I want you to do this in an organic way. <laughs> you ought to sit down with you and your session and your staff once a year with these categories and just ask the question: Where are the three places we're succeeding with this, and where are we failing? I would always say when you evaluate yourself, go three to one. You're good at this, this, and this. We're terrible at this. And these are the areas you look at. Now, let me, let me say something to take a little bit of the edge off. Nobody's great at all. I think it's the guy, it's Steve Childress, I think, 
who has churches do five, it's, I don't remember the number, but he has this beautiful thing. All churches do one of five things. And he says, the best church can only be good at two of them. So, I, I, two, you know, uh, um, mercy ministry, worship, Christian education, so whatever they are, you can only be good at two of them. But good leadership, good honest leadership is able to look at this stuff and go, we're terrible at this. Now, I don't know if we can get better at it, but you can't just keep walking by it. You can't just act like it's not there, right? And so it, it doesn't mean you can fix it, but you also want to do this so that when you have staff change, your interns go away or somebody moves to seminary or somebody takes a call to another church, you're more prepared to admit what you need and, and really hire to that in this, in this area. And, um, so um, that's my last plug for that. And then we'll move to principles. stuff that normal people don't believe. <laughs> this is the important stuff that normal people don't believe. Case in point. Um, so in my first year of preaching, you know, as the head pastor of the church, and we did a series <coughs> leading up to, to, to uh, Advent, doing an Advent series, which left like the 30th, the last day of December. It's like this odd, low attendance Sunday, so you you have about four of those Sundays a year where you transition from summer to school, and I said, well, all right, for my we'll have five transition Sundays this year. We'll do the solas. So when we have these points where we change, we'll stick in a sola. So I did sola scriptura. So think about my demographic: five hundred and fifty people, probably. 300 of them are from the Midwest, the South, or Florida. Of that 300, these are the ones <coughs> who were, so many of them were led to Christ by Mark. All of them grew up in a church. And almost all of them grew up in a Bible-believing church. The rest of the, the 200 are, are harder to describe, like their experience. But because our church, because the institution of our church fell apart and, and fell in on itself, the people that remained are like the strong, not necessarily the strong Christians, but the survivors, people who really buy the idea of the church from the beginning. And so I, I went to do this sermon, and I thought, I was a little scared. I'm like, man, they're all going to, you know, they've heard this a million times, so it's like covering your territory, how do I make it fresh? 
And I used John 1 and just did, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, da da da. My, I think my three points were Jesus is the Word, Jesus dripped the Word, and um, the Word is what saves you. I think those are my three points. I got like 25 text messages about this sermon. And they were all this like, I don't remember the last time I've heard somebody preach about the Bible. Or this is the first time I've ever heard somebody preach about the Bible. I really hadn't. This is from a deacon. I really never had thought about Jesus being the Word till today. Um, <laughs> he believes in Jesus. He just we had to help him, and it made me realize that I have thought about the Bible and inspiration a ton, especially with college kids. You sit down with you and go, I don't believe what the Bible's true, and I had to answer that question over and over. Like, I can almost go into the automatic, well, you want to read this, and we'll talk about it. I've really had to think about the Bible. What I thought about my church in Tucson, which means your church in the southeast is worse, is people don't teach on this very much. But what's interesting is if you believe in our POM, and you don't have to, this says that you ought to preach on this more often than you think you should. So, And let me say this more helpfully to youth pastors, especially to youth. I know you should preach on it, but you should engage them on deeper levels on what they think about the Bible, on what they think about truth. Um, you know, um, that, that I would be in a mature church with survivors, and that's the... That's the most reaction I've gotten to, a, gotten to a sermon by far. And people, like this past Sunday, um, a woman came up to me and said, my sister is listening to your sermons on the podcast. Thank you. I don't know, I don't know her sister. She, said, she got to the Bible and she says it's the best sermon she's ever heard. And her sister is 62. They grew up Lutherans, Bible-believing Lutherans. Never heard a sermon on the Bible. I think it's just because it's what we work in, we don't teach it. So I'm using this illustration to say, you can't teach on these things enough. So let me remind you what we think the principles are. We think the principles are the heart of the gospel. And that it teaches us what it means to be united to Christ. And I would argue, for instance, for many of you may have gone to Westminster and get real fired up about union with Christ. There's a lot of cool reasons to be fired up, fired up about union with Christ. Union with Christ is a bit too big of a term for, all, for laymen. I, laymen aren't dumb. I just mean, again, when I studied union with Christ, it involved nine books <laughs> in three months and 20 hours of conversation to get it in my head. Let me, let me think about all of the engineering people that work at Raytheon in my church with four kids, a mortgage, a Christian school bill, an exhausted wife, and a two-full schedule who can do that study with me. Let me come up with that number. I mean, nobody. And so these principles should be themes that you hit over and over with your people. So, how does this program us? So this is how it programs a friend of mine, and I'm going to steal it right from him. He went to a church, good church, 
Um, he, he just had to be very careful. It had been such a good church. But he realized that the pastor he followed, who, again, sort of like the one I thought had been so effective and so good to build such a good church, that sort of in his later years, I don't know the right word, it wasn't lazy, but he just had sort of gone through the motions, he hadn't been as energetic, and he hadn't covered as much stuff. So they created a class called What is the Gospel? They had about 700 people in this church. You could do this with 70. And he just said, over the next two years, I need everybody to do this class. And it's a four-week class, and they sort of tweaked it into part of their new members process. They asked new members to do it. They asked all the members, and he teaches two weeks, his assistant teaches a week, and others, the youth guy teaches a week. And it's just this. How are we, what does it mean that we're sinful? What does it mean we're justified? How do we grow? Where are we going? This is the gospel. And, you know, he just says it's been surprisingly the most helpful thing he's done there. And partly realize what he's doing is he's getting everybody on a page. But how this would relate to youth ministry, so I don't know that he put Bible in his what is the gospel class, but how this might relate to youth ministry is that you might, might, now, if you're really doing a model because of our POM that is much more in tune with non-Christians, I still might do this, but that might change it. If you're, if you're really only, if you're really dealing with 60-70% non-Christians, I would just say you can't talk about Jesus too much. Like, I would want to almost start every fall with a gospel, right? That's what we did in REF. You really got to, like, let them meet Jesus in the gospel. But if you're in a, in, in a church that's more mature and more bible beltish, I would think you'd want to start every fall with, and you might call this, but who is Jesus and what did he say? Like, four weeks. And, I don't know that I love this. He changed my life. David Sinclair, who was campus minister for years and years at Clemson University, started every semester with, I don't commend this to you, it's highly effective, with the exact same sermon on 2 Timothy. He didn't even change it. Bible's the Word of God. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. You can't grow without the inspired Word of God. I can probably give you the points and subpoints. Which com- and he just did it the first, and he just said, look, Arius built on the Bible. It, I don't know that I agree with that, but there's something to be learned there that he, he comes back to it. And I would also say to you, and while I'm deeply appreciative of him, and he, he, uh, he is smarter, better, and godlier than me, <coughs> that I, I like the idea of gospel, the word gospel. I would never change it, but you, I sort of think the best way to talk about the gospel our union with Christ is, is that what he's done for me, what he's doing in me, what he's going to do to me. That people need the past, present, and future work of Christ. And this lets me get at that. So what these say is even if you don't have a plan and you're organic, these are the things you should organically teach accidentally as often as you get to it. I'm just, come on, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but, and you need to keep circling back to them. Um, yeah, I'm going to Colossians, and I got to that little section on, uh, uh, how does it say in Colossians? Uh, you were alienated, but he has reconciled you through Christ's body. Um, and I just, you know, made the point that, you know, here, you know I'm just normal preaching, hey, Catfoot, uh, 
man, we're going to be about Jesus Christ. We want everybody who walks through those doors to hear that Christ substituted his body for them and gave his righteousness to you so that you are, you know, that phrase, you are without blemish. No one can make an accusation against you. So I just sort of beat on that a little bit. Place comes apart. People are saying, really? Like, even though I'm still saying that no one can accuse me? And I'm like, they don't know about the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And they're 20 years. That's not a criticism of Mark. No, like, I'm just telling you, this stuff is simple for you, and it isn't for your people. That's what I, you are, un, the more you understand yourself to be unusual, the better you'll be at incarnation. Because <laughs> they're not like you. They don't, they don't have like nine books on justification where some really smart, weird people are debating distinctions that can't be made between protons and electrons about just a And you've read these and enjoyed them. All your people have read is their rivals page about their bad recruiting fall they're having. That's what they've read. So you can't. Unless you're Alabama and then you have a great fall. You can't talk about this too much. Now, but especially youth people. You got them four years. I mean, maybe you got them eight because you, you get them in um, sixth grade, right? Seven, eight years. You really can't talk about this too much. And I will say this to encourage you. I, I, this is encouraging for my point. Youth pastors used to always say to me and Arya, like, you know, we hate Arya. This is kind of a joke. I'm like, wow, they're like, because I told them four years, all this stuff. And then the first fall in your argument, if they came home, I said, you know about justification by faith, and I wanted to hit myself. <laughs> right? Whenever there's dramatic change, that's when people learn. That's just a fact. And they would not have understood it that quickly if you had not sown the seeds. And I would just say, as important as Tim Keller has been for the health and hope of the PCA, and especially as embracing of what the gospel is, he's right. We're saying... I use that word a lot, but I want people to understand these words. I, if, if a member of mine was interviewed at their death, what did I learn at Cat Foothill? Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and this is how he justified, changed me, and what he's going about to do to me. That's what I would want them to spit out. That's what I want them to tell their neighbors. So this is really a, this is really a, um, it's, it's a grid to help you think about your own, um, what you're teaching, about your content, about what you need to be putting in front of them. And you, I think you're aware of this. We make sure that justification and scripture are an ROIM theme every three years. We have to be to get the conferences. Uh, we do sanctification and glorification too, but not always as often. But those two, we always make sure that every four years a kid, if he came four years, hit it. And you know, the theme carries across the conferences. Yes, sir. So you said... It's good to be evaluating that you're getting this through. How would you try to evaluate your youth group or your church that you're actually doing what you want to do? Well, I mean, one of the ways, um, so, okay, so you, 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 what I'm about to tell you, you better believe in justification by faith before you just do this. <laughs> but I got challenged to do it, and I'm doing it so far, and it hurts. So I try to make sure that in my week after a sermon, in my providentially one-on-ones with members, that if it's not a huge crisis for them or it's normal, I say, please tell me what I said on Sunday. And when they say, well, you know, John, you talked about um, 
the church in Colossians. I did. But what did I want you to do with it? And no, by the way, no matter what they say, it's like, yeah, that's right. Even when they're not right, I don't, I don't want them to feel like they failed. But you've got to be willing to hear you're terrible at communicating, even when you're great at it, right? <laughs> that whether it's the child was ill, or the husband lost his job, or that, you know. And that's, I also think it's worth, like, like I went in front of a Sunday school to meet him. And I said, I want y'all to tell me why the Bible is important. And it just gave me real insight because they felt freedom to talk about it. And I just think you've got to consciously do it. I don't even think it would be wrong at some point to just survey your congregation and say, we're in, you know, you might hide it and say, we're interested in what you think is great about this church. We're, tell us where we need to improve. If, if someone asks you what justification of faith means, what would you say? Now, you be, I'm telling you, before you read those answers, you better pray fast and believe in justification by faith. But it still helps. Because I think what, was, what really struck me on this Colossians passage, it actually, I mean, you're a preacher, we're all pretty, you know, I sort of said, I am free from accusation, it's crazy. And um, that imputed righteousness, I often think, I, you know, I say a lot, I said a lot in our opinion, we're half justification people. You can ask America, what did Jesus do for people? He died for them. Why did this is the pagans? Why did he die to take away their sins? A person with sins removed without righteousness is as lost as the person without their sins removed. It takes righteousness to get into heaven, right? And that that was what was revealing that as I beat on that free from accusation and made, you know, a little not a tossway comment, but I, I don't think I wrote it in my notes is in the past, in the present, in the future, you're free from accusation. And boy, that's hard for us to believe. Okay. So I think it's just, you've just got to be willing to tell you, like, you know, let me say this, one of my wife's my rule is, you, my wife, I love you, you cannot talk about the sermon until Tuesday. But you can talk about it on Tuesday. But you, I, I wouldn't always do that Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Um, so, other questions? Um, I don't know, this is kind of maybe big picture, but I was thinking about it with um, with the teaching, and then it kind of got bigger picture from there, but you've got a church in the Bible Belt um, where you've got kids that are like re- ready to learn. They really want to learn. They're really into it. They're really into the heavy stuff. And yeah, then sure. you've got kids that probably maybe not saved, or baby Christians. And there's just like a war. Because some parents are saying, teach the hard stuff that you be prepared. And then other t- parents are saying, why are you not teaching stuff about sex and fun and like the stuff they're struggling with, actually? And so, what do you do with that? <laughs> Sorry. That's a great, really a great question. I understand it. And my first answer is you move to Tucson. <laughs> I think my second answer would be... Um, so I'm going to give an I'm going to give a perfect answer, and nobody can do it perfectly. Okay, and I mean it's important because some of you are over 15 youth, and some of you are in you know 150, 400 youth. And it's always true that resource allocation matters in ministry, big time. But having said that, I would just program to that. I would have John Stone's made up joke on the spot, the Taylor Swift Bible study. And I would have the Calvin Bible study. 
Now, for me, both of them would talk a lot about these things. Maybe to the Calvin's Bible study, I would say, let's be careful that our knowledge is not our righteousness. Um, let's be careful, you know. But I would also just teach them. I think that's fair, you know. Uh, and then I would have... But you would also just segment your staff and say, hey, this fall, when the new kids show up... If a kid wanders in that who, who doesn't understand it, I'm not going to tell them to leave. But I'm going to try to, you know, hoard, I'm going to try to shepherd people into the right group. And I would just want a Bible study on the book of John and maybe a Bible study on the book of Romans. There'd be nothing wrong with that. But I do think you should, if that's what your church is asking, <coughs> it's a fair thing to move towards. Hear me, I gave a perfect answer in my mind. Not everybody has those resources. You may have, it may be you, the youth pastor, and his exhausted six-child wife, right? Like that, and so now it's you, and you can't do two Bible studies, and then you just sort of do what you can do. But in a bigger setting, that's when you start to say, well, I mean, we have this 34-year-old elder who could teach that along with this person, and then we, the staff, could teach this one. And I just think that would be, that'd be one way to sort of do it. Yes, ma'am? Kind of along those lines. How do you feel about youth being in adult Sunday school classes because they, the parents feel, yeah, like that the youth group isn't deep enough for their child? Um, so I think Joey said this. I, don't know, I think he said it first year people. He said it y'all last year, right? In youth ministry, you're walking this really beautiful road, and it's a pretty beautiful road where it is your job to disciple kids into the church and back into their families. And even in some level, again, depending on staff size, hopefully there may be an assistant pastor dealing with those dads. And I honestly, if you want me to get on a second hobby horse, which I'm not going to get on, I think we have too much expectations about spiritual leadership at times. Not that it shouldn't be there, but like it looks like a sermon and prayer at the dinner table. Uh, I would just encourage you to go upstairs, hug your children, say I love you, I'm proud of you, and let's pray. And that will be fantastic for most of the family. It's what they can do. So that's my long way of saying my problem with the folks who say, I want a deeper youth group for my children. Youth group's not deep enough. And in fact, I probably want not a youth group, but family group, is it essentially denies uh, human development. And it denies some realities that even the scriptures point to. So I promised myself as a father that my children would think I was cool, and they don't. <laughs> and they never have. I mean, literally. So I heard, uh, I was very proud of this moment, I heard one of Mary Simpson's friends go, now, her dad made this easy, but the daughter said, your dad is so cool. And my, Mary Simpson went, that is so gross. Like, he is so awkward. Like, <laughs> I'm her dad. And um, I need a community to raise her. So my problem with some I'm, I mean, I couldn't be more pro-family. If we, if, we if we had a revival, families would strengthen up and 
they would play more, they would do more memories, they would read the Bible, and they'd have more fun. But the, the difficulty with that sort of family-centered model of youth ministry is it's lying about both parents and the children. Because you need your children to have a safe, family-friendly in place to say, my parents are crazy. Um, or I don't understand my parents, or they don't understand me. You need people where they can say, I can't tell my dad I don't believe the Bible, but I don't, will you help me? And when you don't acknowledge that, you're just creating real chaos for you and your children at some point. Um, because I don't know, I trust Young Life, by the way, I don't know how they came up with the staff, but I went to their fundraising event in Tucson, and they said this out loud. So one of the reasons we believe Young Life's important the statistics show that a kid, 85% of kids in church, um, somebody asked them why the church should care about young life because they kind of perceived it as only non-Christians. And they answered back by saying 85% of the kids in church, if they have a non-family member deeply involved in their spiritual growth, will continue with Christ. What's interesting about that stat is, I believe it, but it also sort of puts to bed the idea that strong dads will solve the problem. What is a strong dad? He hugs people, he laughs, he creates fun, <coughs> he is present, uh, sometimes he takes cars away, uh, <laughs> he, checks, he checks filter. I mean, a dad is just a guy and he can't be everything. This is why it's a church, right? So I think the, my big answer to that is, if the Bible is telling us to build a church, Good families will follow. It's not telling us to build good families in a church will follow. In fact, Jesus is the most disruptive person about family you've ever met. I came to set father against son, mother against daughter. And um, when his mother comes to take him out of ministry, she thinks he's crazy. He goes, that's not my mother. You're my mother. And, bro. and, and he says, there won't be anybody get like, when you get to heaven, you won't recognize your spouse. They'll be so glorious, y'all will be so different. Gender and all that stuff will have morphed a little bit that you won't be aware. Like, this is not an eternal institution. Um, and thank God, <laughs> we all don't want to necessarily live in that house forever with each other. <laughs> I would die for my wife, you understand that, right? But come on. <laughs> she loves to bake. I just want somebody to go cook a little bit. My wife's awesome. But I think that you just have to be careful with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's one thing to do some night is to have a men's meeting. That's bring them in a room, get them of the right size, and go, tell me what you're afraid of, and get the men talking. And sometimes that'll dispel some of this stuff. There'll be a guy in the room that's like, we need more dad-centered homes, and after these dads talk out loud, he'll be like, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> That's not equally safe everywhere. Other questions? I'm kind of out of stuff to say, so I don't know if you don't have another question. I'm glad to answer questions, but I'm pretty close to it. I guess this is kind of, I mean, it might even be the exact same question that, um, is it a earlier. Um, I know with ours again, I've said a million times we've been here, we're a church plant, and so we have 
basically middle schoolers. Um, mm. With fall next year, it's going to be mostly sixth graders and one sophomore girl. We meet on Sunday mornings for about 45 minutes, and that's the extent of our youth group. Sure. Um, but yet we have the parent of the older girl saying, we're not going to be able to have her in the family of the sixth graders, so they can't learn the same thing, things. And so we're like, okay, well, how do we tweak this? Maybe I can do something special with the older girl. But then when we try to find a high school conference or something, the parents just don't get involved in it. And so it's like, well, what do you want us to do? So anyway, what I'm getting to is the same thing. Um, where do you go to in teaching with that to make a sixth grade immature boy understand in the same room as a sophomore high school girl who wants to learn? Um, how do you break that down? I don't think it can be done. I mean, I, don't, I think you're asking a very good question, but... A sixth grade boy and a tenth grade girl, mm. your, your content should be. I mean, under, okay, I acknowledge you my own what I've said, but right. I mean, it's just way different. I mean, she's dealing with uh, the first beginnings of sexual confusion and men, and even if it's a Christian school and all of this stuff, and the sixth grade boy wants to know why Trevor Lawrence, how did Trevor Lawrence's signature, and that's it, right? And so you can't sort of, um, I, I even, there, there, it's interesting, her question, there was a season where people were like, there should not be age divided youth groups. You try that for about six months, you'll have four youth. Um, you just can't. And I would just say, okay, so I don't know your church, your people, your elders, but I would say, today we cannot provide services for your daughter you probably ought to go to First Baptist with a big youth group. <laughs> I mean, I really mean that. Like, there are times to say, we can't do that. Uh, if she won't go with me to RYM or let me take her for donuts on Tuesday and do a Bible study with her and a friend she finds, that's all we can do. And you don't need to be ashamed. You're not failing. It's just, it's hard. And we actually did that this summer. Um, we took our middle schoolers to RYM in Texas, and then just her and a friend were by themselves. Did um, they like it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. It. Um, it's just a matter of fact, like when you get back, the real world and everything hard. In youth ministry, the hardest thing you face is trying to please parents. I mean, you please most of them. I just want, I want you to hear me say this as a head pastor. The best youth pastor has a 35% parent failure rate. That's the best. The day you're hired, 35% of the people are disappointed in your existence. And that's your best day. That's your best day. It's like because every parent wants the youth person to be their child's best friend's mentor, saver. So I just want you to know, while you're in this business, your best day is a 65% approval rate. That's your best day. And... Um, and that's okay. And most good leaderships get that. You just pick a youth group, you make what it is, you go serve Jesus well, and you realize that certain parents just aren't going to jihad with it. It's just okay. And you just got to believe in justification by faith and not justification by youth. Yes. <laughs> Any last questions? Yeah, yes, sir. This is, this, is, this is a hypothetical question because I realize... Ask it for a friend. You're asking for a friend. Context matters. <laughs> No, I just when you I'm think kidding. about the five things and or as you made the five things in the goals, if you were gonna given your experience with college students, churches, dynamics, stuff across the south, if you're gonna pick one of those and say like in the next five years, this one's gonna be either especially tricky or especially fruitful for gospel work. I'm just curious. 
which ones would you say? I'd like, so to, for I'd me, like to see more eggs put in that bucket. In so that bucket. If, if, for me, it's the missions bucket, and I can tell you why. Doing RUF, we would have these kids who, um, who just sort of got it but didn't get it. I mean, they were Christians, but it was hard to really feel like you engage your hearts. If we could get them on a mission trip, we normally, not always, but I mean, maybe 80% of the time, we got a leader. We didn't just get a Christian whose heart was, let's just say on fire, but tuned up. We got a leader. Here's my theory on why. Most American kids who end up at the University of Tennessee or Clemson or Mississippi State have not really ever faced an insolvable problem. And they've never faced a problem they couldn't solve or that their parents couldn't solve. When you put somebody in Costa Rica or, or Mexico or a real urban city context where you have safely thought about this at a time where you're looking at some homeless people with mental illness for the first time in their life, they can't solve that problem. And I've just seen a lot of people say, oh, wait, wait, the only thing that would ever work here is the gospel, like the Bible. And, and that's why for me, like I would say to you, if, if you want to know what I want you to take away from this, and that is, you need to establish some places that you regularly take students. You know, and maybe you do it in terms of our freshmen, um, let me just pick. They always go to this place in Chattanooga, which is just really cool but safer place. And then juniors we always take out of the country. And we go to Kenya for 10 days. Um, I think that um, when you stood in front of your RUF, um, the kids that always jumped out with you were kids whose parents were especially fun Here's what I think that means. Their parents established a lot of memories for them that made them want to be with their parents. And kids who had a lot of a, a lot of mission work around them, who had who had grappled with what we're doing here at UT is not normal. It's not normal in history. It's not even normal today. It's good, and we should do it. But um, it, now the first you didn't ask. The first is mine. So like, I, the first meant we decided to always send our girls to camp. And our girls think us sending them to camp was the greatest gift we ever gave them. They had great memories. They got to be all girls for a week. Um, but I made my children go on mission trips to our RUF. And they really remember that well. And I think for my middle daughter, who is an incredibly thoughtful, deep introvert, with only liberal friends, I'm just offering an opinion, that's the only thing holding her in the faith. It's where she saw Christians. She sort of sees through everything. And so when we got her in places where Christians laid down their lives, it impacted her. So that would be my bucket. Um, and I, if I had to pick a second one, it would probably be service. Like, what, but here's what I mean. Like, what could we do in this nice public high school that would love our neighbor? Mm -hmm. Should we make brownies one day and just give out brownies? When they say, why, we just go, we love you. Um, it doesn't always have to be just deeply hard, you know. <laughs> We're dying to ourselves. Make brownies. Uh, give them to people. It's a, it's a, so those would be my two. That's a good question. Other questions? Thank you all so much. Go in, go in peace.